Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Jim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. What's up, everybody? It's Weekly Weights, and I don't know what episode it is. Episode 85. I'm just looking six. it up. I think it's five. Probably 85. Um, irrespective of the episode, I'm Will. With me is Alex. Hello. Um, and today we are going to talk about something that came up in conversation with Jamie Smith in our episode last week, which was transitioning out of a competition and back into productive training. So doing that transition block or doing what Alex called, what do you call it again? Recovery block or... Doing. I mean, it's pr- pretty rare that I would label it a recovery block. But that's how you conceptualize it. In that's head. how. I, that's the kind of how I would conceptualize it for someone who's sort of been through the ringer during comp prep, like someone who's quite strong, yeah, or someone who's just had a tough time and like needs a bit more time to ease back into it. Anyway, if in, you in most cases, I'd probably call it an intro. Right. I mean, but fundamentally, we're talking about the same types of things. If you haven't listened to the episode that we did with Jamie, it's a really good one. And in that episode, he talks a little bit about why it would be likely important to do that. He speaks about the acute to chronic workload ratio, which basically describes exactly what the name says. So it's how much work you're doing now relative to how much work you've been doing over the past however long. Um, And when there's massive spikes in acute workload, that can be a predictor of injury risk. So what he spoke about in the comp was how it can be important to taper out of a competition in the same way that you taper in because in the in the week's preceding competition we tend to train with much lower volumes so today we're going to talk a little bit about the practicalities of how we do that and the things we think about when we do so but prior to that this is what alex you were asking about just before um i came across something on my facebook news feed that i wanted to address and because we're weekly weights and we're always current we're going to talk about a scientific study alex's eyes just fell He's crestfallen. He where's, thought it was going to be something good. Where's no. the mute button on my remote, uh, my uh, <laughs> microphone? <laughs> no, it's a scientific study. Um, well, it's not actually a study. It's a systematic review that came out today of all days. It was actually published on Medline seven hours ago, Alex. That's how current we are. Um, and it Inside is scoop. <laughs> massive inside scoop from Weekly Weights. And it's called... I've actually just closed the video... But um, not the video, sorry, I should say the, the browser. But it is called the minimum effective training dose required to increase 1RM strength in resistance-trained men, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And the authors are, oh my God, um, the first author's name is Andrew Larkas Korakakis. I'm so sorry if I said that wrong. That's a surname. It's hyphenated. Andrew Larkas Korakakis and then the other two authors are Fisher and Steele. Um, and I thought it was of some practical relevance to Weekly Weights listeners because I've had a few clients ask me exactly how little work they could do and get away with um, in training. And Alex and I have sort of conceptually answered that a few times now. Before you, uh, before you continue, Will, yeah. can you name and shame those clients who are lazy? I'm not... I don't think it's right to publicly vilify clients for not wanting to do anything. Okay, just say their initials. But Simon Vincent has asked me <laughs> on a number of occasions. Um, to be fair, Simon has a... He works for the government um, and he has a baby on the way. So he's he's doing quite a lot of work, um, which is why he wants to know how little he can do. Anyway, 
so they've done weak, this systematic review. Weak, weak excuse. <laughs> weak excuse. Um, they've done this systematic review. And the conclusion of the review was basically that one set, one to three times per week of six to 12 reps at 70 to 85% of one rep max, near failure, appears to be enough to promote significant but suboptimal strength gains over the course of eight to 12 weeks. Um, now, there's a little bit to unpack in that statement and a little bit to unpack about about the studies themselves. And Alex, if you do listen just enough to what I'm saying, you could probably you could probably lend a practical practical eye to what I'm going to say, not Listening. just text your clients. Beautiful. Um, the second I said science, Alex was like, I'm checking the fuck out. I haven't even read a novel, let alone a study. He thought. It's true. Um, okay. So first things first, what are suboptimal but significant gains in one rep max strength? So, so the data that they reported was on squat and bench press because none of the studies that they had examined deadlift strength or not enough examined deadlift strength for them to do systematic review on. And in the case of the squat, they were talking 12 kilogram increases in one rep max um, with confidence intervals of 8 to 16 kilos. And in the bench press, 8 kilogram increases in one rep max. Again, this is over the course of two to three months. But confidence intervals in the case of the bench press were actually really wide. So 0.68, which is to say basically no increase in strength, to 16 kilogram increases. So that's, um, that's what they were saying were significant but suboptimal gains. Now, how do we know that they're suboptimal? There were only six studies that made it into this sample, but in the majority of them, um, there were groups that did higher volumes of training, or in all of them, there were groups that did higher volumes of training than just one set. And in the majority of those cases, the groups doing higher volumes of training did get meaningfully better strength results. Um, So in a number of the studies, the differences came out to roughly 50% differences in the actual amount of strength people gained over that time period for doing, say, three sets or five sets per exercise as opposed to one. So for going from low volumes to moderate volumes, you do get a significant kickback. It's not to say that low volumes can't get you gains at all, but it's certainly at a trade-off. And they also referenced another meta-analysis that came out recently by Ralston. I hope I said that one right, or Ralston. And in that meta-analysis, they... They reported large effect sizes for doing low volume, so less than five sets of strength training per week, but found the optimal optimal gains to be at greater than 10 sets per week as well. So it is to say that you can viably gain strength with low volumes, at least over the short term, but doing more is almost certainly going to return you more. A couple of other concerns, though, in the study was... I, Alex, when I said one set close to failure of six to 12 repetitions at 70 to 85% of one rep max, how much to you does that actually sound like powerlifting training? Oh, like the, I would say the majority of training is in that range, right? Yeah, but how often are we doing sets of six to 12 in powerlifting? I would say 50% of the year. Yeah, okay, okay, that's probably a pretty reasonable answer. But if you were to say I'm writing a program purely for strength in the most bare-bones sense, how many reps do you reckon you'd be doing? Yeah, three to eight most likely. Yeah, probably higher intensities. And I think all of the studies that they included in these samples weren't really designed to examine gaining strength for powerlifting optimally. What they did was compare different levels of volume and measure hypertrophy and strength and see if there were differential relationships. I but think, it's a different question, I right? I think the 
the biggest issue is the subjects they use, right? Like yeah. they, they consider trained trained individuals to be someone who's like been in a gym before. I don't know. You could give you could probably give a definition if you looked it up. Yeah. Well, in this instance, I think the gains for I think the gains they were quoting for squat one RM were, and this is in a sample of entirely men. There were no women included. They were going from something like 120 or 130 ish kilograms squat maxes to 140 to 150 ish kilo squat maxes. So we're not talking highly trained individuals. No. Yeah. So I think where that falls apart is when we're trying to apply that to the people who we talk to in this podcast, right? Mm. They are, I would say, 95% competitive powerlifters. Yep. Who, where this information is pretty, pretty meaningless if, like, they're at that experience level where one set is well below what's going to get them to improve? Well, I'm not certain that one set is well below what's going to get them to improve, but I do think that I do think that the duration of time over which will be sufficient to make them improve is up for question, and I wrote a couple of notes down about that. But I also think the magnitude of improvement that they could expect from doing very low volumes is going to be much less. Like, I think if you are nearing the ceiling of your strength potential and you did and you did maybe a third of the... on A third's pretty extreme, but say it was a third or half of the optimal volume, like optimal set volume that you could have done with very high effort. If you were going to gain five kilos to one rep max over six months, you may not gain enough to actually see it on the platform at all. And so at that point, you're basically saying you're not making gains, but you're also the difference between optimal training and and suboptimal training is the difference between making gains and not making gains at all when you're very, very good, right? I agree, yeah. So, so I get your point. I hear it, and it's true. Um, but I think in concept, you can apply it. Um, you mentioned, though, how long would it work for, I think, way back at the start, right? Did you say that? Maybe no, I said that. I didn't say that. I was monologuing, so maybe I was just talking to myself. Somebody somewhere said, how long could it possibly work for to only do one set close to failure? And again, that's something that they brought up in the study. Is this one set per session for multiple sessions or what? Yeah, one set per session on the power lifts. In a couple of the in a couple of the studies, they had a couple of other exercises that also addressed the target muscle groups. So in one of the studies by Ostrakowski, they had people doing squats, but they also did a set of leg press. And I think they de- did deadlifts, hamstring curls, and possibly leg extensions as well. So really what they were doing was three sets for the legs, but only on one training session. Whereas in other studies, they had one set of squats on between one and three training sessions per week. But yeah, they're talking one set largely. Um, how long would it work for though? In the studies that were in the studies that were included in this sample, only one actually ran longer than ten weeks. The majority were eight to ten. And in one of the studies that did a did a strength test at the six week mark and the ten week mark, they found that they'd gained strength from week one to week six, but that they didn't gain any strength from week ten or from week six to week ten. Right? There was no difference in those final four weeks. So that immediately calls into question whether these people are actually sort of realizing strength potential that they already had or actually doing the foundational work that is going to get them better for the long term, right? And I think... It, when, it, it may even be a case of like, maybe they haven't done squat and bench press in a long time and all that they've done is improve their technique, which has resulted in a higher training max, right? I mean, very possibly. I would expect that most people who identify as resistance trained males, and I'd have to read the individual studies and see... But I bet that most people who identify as resistance-trained males who come in to do these studies 
have probably bench pressed recently, right? Like if you go to the gym regularly, self-identify somebody who goes to the gym a few times a week and have for at least six or eight months, chances are you bench press. Yeah, I think for males, bench press definitely, but I don't think a lot of people who aren't interested in performance for squat and deadlift would squat and deadlift voluntarily very often. Yeah, maybe like not. If, if I polled like the guys I play basketball with, for example, mm-hmm. like they'll go to the gym a couple times a week. Yeah. They would all fit the criteria of this study. And if you got them to do a one rep max squat, they could probably squat somewhere between 100 and 140, right? Yeah. But they don't do squats probably ever. Yeah. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, so I do understand So maybe in the first six weeks of this study, if they're doing, you know, one set of squats twice a week, you're going to expect a pretty rapid increase just with doing that little. Yeah, that in fact, that may well be true. So when I spoke about how wide the confidence intervals were for bench as opposed to squat, so... In, Again, but I'll yeah, that, yeah, I was going to refer back to that as well. That is why I think the bench would be a lot less because I think bench is just more common among regular gym goers. Well, so I was suspecting that in the case of bench press, probably you just need a little bit more total volume of work because that would that would line up with what we expect in practice. Yeah, that too. So doing very low volume bench routines are likely to self-exhaust earlier. But also but, the other thing is like guys who go to the gym you know quote unquote regularly if it's just twice a week casually like they're going to do upper body probably both of those times yeah and then you strip their volume back to one set of bench and maybe one set of accessories twice a week it's going to be less than what they were doing prior totally um and whereas like the squat might be more true um so my yeah my initial impression was was what i said that i i thought low volume training would probably like self-exhaust on the upper body so stop giving you gains on the upper body before the lower body but alex adds the very good point that to be honest if you're just untrained in the lower body then you're just going to get more out of doing not much and that's true too your little rant reminded me of jason jason Genova upper body lower body rant <laughs> that's one of <laughs> one of the greatest lifting diatribes ever given on the internet um and to this day true i would say guys if you don't know jason is it Genova or Genova? Genova. i think it's Genova. did i i don't think i've spoken about this on the podcast i got training inquiries from jason genova twice and like obviously it wasn't from him somebody made a fake email account to email me um saying like you know it's jason genova like you know i'm here to make sickening gains like it piss like when can we get started we're freaks right i got one of them and i was like this is so funny definitely from berg well, this is... Okay, so I have a client who loves Jason Genova and loves memes, and he swears, like, on his mother's grave it wasn't him. Could have been Lockie? No, he wouldn't even know who he is. So, um, about six months later, though, I got a second email from Jason Genova. Different email address, so whoever made the first one had forgotten the login and gone through the process of making another Gmail just to troll me. So, I've now had two of these stupid trolls, and I still don't know who it is. Um, anyway... Going back to this study, not included in the meta-analysis, but but they spoke because it was a pilot study. But they did spoke, speak about it. Was another another bit of research that had done on people doing a Bulgarian esque training program. So doing one to two heavy singles in the ninety to ninety seven percent one RM range, um, and that the people who were doing that a few times a week increased their what they called a peri training total. So the the total they're putting up in training, they improved their training total over the course of five to seven weeks as well. Um, 
So very possibly doing those low volumes of training again for those short periods of time are going to be sufficient to increase your powerlifting performance, whether or not that's you know a matter of skill acquisition or actually getting you lasting strength adaptation, I don't know. But in the short term, I think we can say it's viable to do low volumes of training. Would you agree? Um, yeah, I would. But I think you've got to be careful when drawing conclusions from studies like this mm-hmm. because of what we mentioned earlier with like the sort of disparity in trainability of the people that they use because there's no set like very specific criteria yep I think if you were to run a similar study on competitive powerlifters and you were to put parameters around it that would suggest that they've been competing this sport for a few years and they're actually of relative competency I think you'd see different results and I think you'd need slightly higher volumes of training to elicit similar uh, response that's almost certainly true that would be like that would be my instinct as well, as more highly trained people would likely need to do a bit more work. But, but you can I don't take, think the difference is astronomical. I think you can take the inference and just add a few sets and like it's still relatively close. Well, the way, the way I interpreted it, this is what I wrote down after reading the whole thing, was that in some ways it's a, it's a vindication of the idea of periodization in general, um, where if you do a whole bunch of base building work with higher volumes, you know, some bodybuilding works, you actually give yourself some foundation off of which you could capitalize, then doing shorter periods of lower volume training to capitalize on the work that you've already done is likely to work. So like across all of the studies that, that I've spoken about that were included in this review, somewhere between six and 10-ish weeks of productive training could be gotten out of reasonably low volumes with reasonably high efforts, right? And even if you think about some common like early intermediate routines like Mad Cow, you remember Mad Cow, the squat routine? For people who don't, it's basically working up to one hard set of five on a Friday and doing doing a few lighter sets earlier in the week on your squat and I think bench press and then you deadlift a heavy five or something every Wednesday. But you don't really do much volume. It's something like that. Um Basically, one hard set of five and then a little bit of pretty sub-max volume across the week. Um, those routines tend to work in the short term. And so probably you can say, if you've got enough of a base to capitalize on, you can make some gains in the short term training with low volumes. Whether or not it's going to be sufficient to keep you gaining for the very long term, I don't know. But I also think it's, it's important that people who are like, I don't have the time to commit to training a couple of hours a day multiple times a week know that at least for a while they can tread water or be productive doing a little bit less provided that the effort is reasonably high each time they go in the gym do you think that's a reasonable thing to say yeah and we even mentioned this on the podcast we did about training on holidays yeah and how little volume is required to actually maintain muscle mass you know if you if you think like you your training is going to fall completely out of the window when you go on holiday you can still you know tread water doing two 45 minute sessions a week it's like a sort of a similar idea yeah exactly um so yeah that would be my that would be my takeaway from this study hot off the presses weekly weights exclusive first ever scientific review feet alex hayes that could be your thesis defense i think i did quite well yeah we should submit that to daniel hackett and see if he'd be willing to (laughs) grant grant you an honorary bachelor's in exercise science um all right to make up for the one that i didn't finish (laughs) All right, on to the topic at hand. So something we can actually talk about with a degree of certainty, which is what we do with our own clients. We were going to talk about the recovery phase, the transition block, whatever it is, what we do after competition. Um, Alex, what in your mind are you actually trying to achieve 
in those immediate few weeks after comp? Well, the first thing is to get them healthy again. Yeah. So when you go through a comp prep, you're going to have lots of niggles. You've been doing the same lifts quite often for a relatively long period of time. You're going to have a couple of things pop up. You know, you might have a little hip niggle or a little shoulder niggle or whatever. Um, if we step away from the comp lifts, we're able to alleviate some of that. So that's the first thing, get healthy. Second thing would be reestablish some sort of work capacity. Um, and, you know, that doesn't happen like in the course of four weeks. It might happen over the course of eight or ten weeks. Um, and it has to start slowly. So, you know, if we go from doing a peak to straight away five sets of 10. First of all, you're going to be so sore. You're not going to be able to do your next session. Second of all, you're not going to have anywhere to progress from. And you're just not going to be able to get through the work without needing such long rest breaks. Um, so yeah, getting some level of cardio fitness back so you can actually get through higher rep sets, getting through some uh, work that's going to improve your work capacity so you can get through more total work in a given session and in a given week and alleviating um, any little niggles we may have, have um, had during the prep. And then the other thing is a little bit of a mental break from, you know, going in and got to work up to a heavy single today, like got to take my pre-workout, got to get my music in, got to like get my mind right, all that kind of stuff. Just sort of bringing it all back down and sort of cruising back in. So I think you've touched on pretty much everything I had written down. Um, I did write the volume work capacity thing and I did... You spoke about sort of getting healthy and restoring some movement variability. So I spoke about that as well. Um, the other thing that I I wrote down was that this first this first phase after comp is also like a, a bit of a pivot towards what you're going to do next. So like your comp training is obviously directed at competition and then your next blocks of training are likely to be directed at development or if you have a competition coming up again for some reason, then it, it may be directed at competition again. But you've got to use this chance, like this chance, to slowly start introducing the things that you're actually intending to work on in the longer term too. Um, when we talk about restoring work capacity and sort of building volume up, how do you go about it? How would that differ from from just the way you would normally structure a block? Um, I usually have the second four week block as the real work block that I actually want to be making progress as far as hypertrophy and like building volume goes yeah and then i use that first block to sort of gradually build into week one of the next block so like if if for instance someone's on a competition mm-hmm. and then in eight weeks time i want them to hit a, a five by ten yeah i'm going to gradually like work backwards and you know the first week maybe three sets of eight and then the next week maybe three sets of eight and then it may be three sets of ten two sets of ten then four sets of ten for a couple of weeks and then two two weeks of five sets of ten and does it have to take eight weeks, do you reckon? doesn't have to, but I think it will take longer for the people who, like I mentioned earlier, get very beat up, the people who lift really big weights and need longer to sort of get back into it. Yep. And also when you lift such big weights in a peak, your volume for everything else is going to be a lot lower. So you're going to lose a lot of that fitness and that work capacity. So you're going to have to take a little bit longer to build it back in. Yeah, I definitely... I definitely am also much more stepwise in how I progress volume across those first four, six or eight weeks than I would be normally. So like a normal, say I wrote a four-week block for a client, a normal four weeks might have the first week be 75 to 80% of the volume that they're going to work at pretty much for the rest of the block. 
you know, so drop a set from a couple of exercises, maybe keep the reps in reserve a little bit higher so it's like a deload or an easy-ish week. And then they basically progress from their volume gets up to where it's going to be for three, four or five weeks or whatever at a time. And they just flatline and work at that sort of productive level of volume and go. Whereas coming out of a competition, because like Alex said, most people have been doing very low volumes as compared to their their normal volumes of training. I might start with doing two sets of eight or two sets of 10 or whatever it happens to be with lots of reps in reserve, like, you know, five reps in reserve or something. And then the next week, add a set and add a little bit of intensity and so on and so on until they're they're actually back at that sort of productive level of volume that we intended them to be at. And yeah, it can take it can take a number of weeks to get up there. I've rarely had to write eight weeks or more, but I also only really have a couple of clients um, who are at the level of strength where I would think that more than four weeks would be needed. Um, but yeah, it does take does take a number of weeks. And one of the reasons why why having lower volumes and being further from failure is really helpful in that initial phase is that the actual um, when you train for hypertrophy, I'm not sure if this is true for strength, but I think it's true for strength as well. When you train for hypertrophy, too much muscle damage, so actually too much disruption, will impair your adaptations to training because the first thing that has to happen for you to build muscle is that you have to repair any micro trauma to the muscles that are already there, right? So if you go straight out of your competition week, accepting the fact that it might actually be a, like might actually put you at risk of proper injury, if you go straight out of competition week where you've done five total reps or something on your squat and you do 50 total reps, you've got a massive qualitative change in your training stimulus, which is one of the predictors of muscle damage. And you're also massively increasing volume, which is one of the predictors of muscle damage. So you get this astronomical degree of muscle damage you hate your life, your legs are really, really sore, and you probably actually adapt less to it than you would have if you did a little bit less training. So you're literally risking injury for worse adaptation. Um, and I think a lot of people get very gung-ho about wanting to get back into training really hard because sometimes you're super motivated after a comp. But being willing to say, hey, I'm going to give my body a few weeks to actually be ready to do the levels of training that I would need chronically to get better is going to set you in much better stead. Would you say so? Yeah, absolutely. And another way that I will sort of stepwise increase total training uh, volume yep. over the course of that eight weeks might be you know if someone trains five times a week um you know in their comp prep and you know mm. most of the year they train five times a week that first block they may do four times a week just so they got more time at home to relax and recover less time in the gym less total work if it's less time in the gym and then you know that second block they might go back to doing five so just get that little extra break from you know all the the hammering five times a week for sure so the second point or actually i think it was the first point that you made but the second one i wrote down was this idea of getting healthy um what do you mean by that and when you said like you know certain things are extra stressed in competition prep what did you mean well i think anyone who is listening to this who's done a powerlifting comp knows like you know when weights ramp up you get the old niggle here and there you might have a little elbow thing you might have a little little knee thing and it tends to happen around the same time of the prep for most people like and it's usually there's usually trends like you know for you for instance you will mm. i'm sure you notice that that after you've done your heaviest deadlift of the prep like your back might be a bit tender yeah for sure and like that's gonna sort of be there the whole time throughout the heaviest work and after the comp what's gonna happen how's your body gonna feel after the comp 
immediately terrible. But like, you know, let's say you compete on a Saturday. How, how are you going to feel on the Monday morning? Probably sad. <laughs> um, but also still pretty sore. Yeah, so like we've got we've got some soreness we've got a few niggles like we want to kind of restore ourselves back to baseline get our body actually feeling good get our joints actually moving and feeling free and stuff like that um it's a hard thing to explain but when you've been through it it's it kind of just explains itself Mm. well one thing um again this is something that jamie has spoken about in one of his visits on the podcast um one thing that's important is to just get a bit more variability back in the way we move. And I think when, we, um, when we're getting very close to a competition for powerlifting, by necessity, our training is super-duper focused on just squatting, just bench pressing, and just deadlifting, right? So there's very, very little chance that you're doing a lot of overhead work or much reaching. You're probably not doing much like knee flexion you probably actually tapered back the amount of upper back work and stuff you're doing. So your body's just not really moving much. And because you're not really moving much at all, you become a little bit constrained in your postures and things. And when you squat and bench press and deadlift, even the strain across the working muscles, so even the strain across your pecs, say when you bench press, is very specific to how you bench, right? The line of pull on your pecs when you bench, you can envisage is different from when you do an incline press or a dumbbell press or a push-up and things like that so you've got this really really concentrated stress right being driven into a kind of smallish number of tissues your movement becomes a little bit constrained and because it's all really like high threshold you know hard squeezy activity that's the technical term because squeezy activity squeezy activity very good but but it's not like you're it's not like you're doing fucking yoga or something right like you're doing a lot of stuff that requires a lot of tension through the muscles. You're just like, you're going to get tight and feel shitty and move a little bit clunkily, right? Let's not shit on yoga here, Will. <laughs> here at Weekly Weights, we accept all ex- exercise. Well, this is the thing. I mean, maybe if we did a bit more yoga through competition prep, we'd move a bit better. But the fact is, most powerlifters don't, right? I was actually thinking that. I was like, you know, once you finish your comp, it might be a good time to go and do something completely not powerlifting. Go and do a couple of yoga. Couple I'm thinking times of yoga. yoga. Go for a swim. Go and... I don't know, shoot some hoops, whatever. Yeah. Or well, maybe not shoot some hoops. Have you seen me with a basketball? It's tragic. Um, I haven't, and I'm happy about that. And <laughs> um, I'd like to keep it that way. But yeah, absolutely. Like you you spend all your time squatting, bench pressing, and deadlifting. Everything involved in squatting, bench pressing, and deadlifting is going to get tight and sore and a bit overworked. Everything not involved in squatting, bench pressing, and deadlifting is going to be a little bit undertrained. Your movement's generally going to be quite constrained, and your body is going to feel a little bit healthier if you start introducing some more movement in different planes. But then you've got to basically start exposing yourself to postures you're not used to. So by necessity, things probably need to be a little bit easier. And the muscles that haven't really been tapped in too much because you've been doing a lot of powerlifting are also going to be pretty fresh. So they're not going to be able to handle a whole lot of training. So one of the things I like to do coming straight out of comp, even for people who are going to move in the very short term back to doing strength training, is say when we do this strength training it's going to be like a general strength phase i'm not going to just focus on ramping up your competition squat you're going to do some hardish competition squatting but you'll also do a very different competition squat and a lot of single leg work and you know you might bench press heavy once a week but you're going to do a lot of overhead work and things like that like get people moving in more planes doing more things and not just the power lifts it may even be a case of flipping it around entirely and putting the sort of heavier quote-unquote general strength work as a variation mm. and then using the comp lift as a like a technical day 
Yeah, for sure. Anything like that can be viable, but it's got there has to be some some degree of balance where you say like I'm not just going to be squat benching and deadlifting 365 days a year. Yeah, and I don't know about you, Will, but when when I get away from a competition, mm-hmm. like a Monday after meet weekend, I don't want to do squats. No, rarely. I don't want to. I certainly don't want to do deadlifts. Like bench, maybe, but like you, you probably wouldn't want to bench. Well, it's weird. Like I, I don't want to look at a barbell on the floor for deadlifts in like three weeks, like at least. <laughs> like it makes my back hurt looking at it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is true to a degree. I do. I don't mind doing variations of them. Like after competition, I I very often quite enjoy doing some high bar squatting, literally because it's posturally different. You know, I don't mind doing the odd RDL or like just pulling sumo for like one week just to get it out of my system. Some um, snatches. Do some, yeah, I love doing some snatches. But yeah, you're right. I don't really want to do the competition list. So it's also, it's nice to feel like I'm done with them for a while. Um, but that's, anyway, that's why I think the movement variability is important is you basically got to expose yourself to some postures and movement patterns haven't been tapped into for a while. Get yourself healthy, quote unquote, from Alex. So that when you do actually want to put the pedal down and hammer it again, you're in a good place to do so. Um, the last thing I wrote down, you did have a third one. Um, but the last thing I wrote down was the idea of pivoting towards your next phase in the phasic plan. So I already started alluding to it with the idea of like of introducing the movements you might use in a coming strength phase. Um, but also if you're if you've identified after your competition that say you know wow my hamstring strength is really lacking um i'm gonna start i'm gonna start really hammering some hamstring intensive variations then chances are the reason you've decided your hamstring strength is lacking is because you haven't really done a lot of concentrated training on your hamstrings so again in that little phase where you're introducing things at low effort that's a great time to start learning familiarizing yourself with hamstring exercises and introducing them at a low volume so you can find the amount that you can tolerate and the ones that feel good so in that first week or two after comp, that might be when you make the targeted variation of your deadlift, like a stiff-legged deadlift or whatever it happens to be, nice and light. So you just get the feeling of it, get your hamstrings feeling like they're doing a job without absolutely hammering them. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it does. And even from like a, a technical aspect of the lift, like during comp prep, we'll notice certain flaws in technique come out mm. and we may start to think in our head, okay, how am I going to address this in the coming blocks? We may use that first block to introduce a new cue or a new teaching of technique in the earlier block in the earlier weeks at super light loads with a variation that just elegantly addresses that particular flaw. Good use of elegant. Glad to have had that impact on you. But yeah, that very much that very much happens. Like I um I actually consciously start saying to my clients in the last three or four weeks leading into competition not to worry too much about making technical corrections like focus on your one or two things that actually help you in performance and then just try really hard and for a number of my clients it's not that i'm not aware of them making what i might consider a technical error or doing something inefficient it's just that it's it's not really the time to try and fix it we've said that a number of times like Mm. if you're trying to lift your max chances are you're not going to be really thinking about some some sort of finicky little technical thing you're just trying really hard right yeah literally what i say to most people now when they're doing heavy stuff is get tight and try hard yeah and get like tight is the biggest meme of the queue <laughs> i spoke to um scott last night so will's client scott yeah he was asking me like about his bench and why he keeps failing so high like he sticks his, his sticking, sticking point, point is, is like 
unbelievably high. It's like two thirds to lockout. It's probably and, further. Oh yeah, no, it's about. It's, it's pretty high. It's pretty high, and he keeps saying like, "Oh man, like you know, like why is why do I why can't I lock it out from there? Like, is my lockout shit?" Yeah, and he I, thinks his triceps. And my my answer is always like, "No, like you know, you lost position, <laughs> you lost shoulder position from from the chest, and then you're in a really bad position." Mm. And then he's like, and then he was like, "Oh, but when I do board presses, you know this." this same thing doesn't happen I'm like yeah because when you do board presses you don't lose a position at the bottom and I'm like stop thinking about it like you got a comp next week just like try really hard and fix it later like now's not the time and I literally had this conversation with him last night I was like yeah, now's I not the time I was simultaneously having that conversation and he was he was saying like oh Will's not telling me how to fix it I'm like he will tell you how to fix it after the comp just wait yeah that was um, like there's nothing you're about to do now that's gonna fix it that was actually I was having that same conversation with him simultaneously last night so, yeah, he's the classic guy who, as the bar leaves his chest, his shoulders begin to protract immediately, his press lengthens, and he sticks really high. And because he has a whole lot of mobility restrictions and is actually working with friend of the show, Pay, on opening himself up a little bit, chances are in time that that will improve. But his problem is scapular control, basically. And he's not going to fix that when he's trying to bench 97% of his max. So I, I do just say to him, hey, bro, just try really hard. Um but after comp, yeah, like Alex said, you do need to consciously start reframing training and say, okay, we've stopped focusing on the comp that was in the past and we've started focusing on developing for the future. So what are the things we've identified as wanting to work on and what can we sort of tactically do in the way that you approach training to try and make those changes and make them stick? And very often just have the process of having had a comp and really tested yourself and feeling where you are weak will help you actually make those decisions. That's one of the reasons I really like doing reflections in the week after comp as well. I think it really helps. Alex, did you have another point on that? So I said get healthy, improve fitness and work capacity and mental. Mental. Go on. Um, re- mental refresher from, you know, getting psyched up to train. It's, it's quite draining mentally to, you know, if you have heavy squats on Monday, you know you have to wake up. You know, you know you have to get to sleep on Sunday night. You know, you have to eat pre-workout meal. You know, you have to like have your caffeine, get your music going, get your mind right before your heavy squats. And then you may have your heavy bench on Tuesday and you got to do the same thing. And then the deadlifts on Friday, you got to do the same thing and you know, repeat that for four to eight weeks, however long stuff is genuinely hard. Like it's going to take a bit of a toll on you mentally. Mm. And it's nice to just be able to have a break and a bit of flexibility from like rigid mealtime, rigid caffeine intake, rigid like psych up for training. I yeah. feel like if you can go in and make training like you know if I wrote you a program straight off the comp wheel I would want you to look at your training program and be like oh cool I can do that like any day of the week with my eyes closed and that's kind of exactly the point mm. um, is that we don't need to sort of get ourselves quote unquote up for training all the time and there's a time and a place to do that and that is during comp prep what about the people in in your experience who are almost like resistant to chilling out you know how some people are just they're very intense and there's no way of or there's not no way actually there's definitely worse it is hard to make them to make them acknowledge that some things are going to take a long-term fix and the best thing for them to be better in 10 weeks is to start chilling out a little bit now and just focus on getting through some training productively they always want to be always want to be pushing that top end and testing and they're not ready to chill out they love training training on the nerve and being intense and stressed all the time how do you frame those discussions well i think it's if if they're if i'm coaching them they kind of 
know that their training is not going to be hard all the time and it's kind of built into the program itself in that like you're not hitting RPE 10s every week so you don't need to be psyched up and if you are like fine but the actual training itself might not be taking it out of you yeah so I, I, I don't know I don't know if you really need to have those conversations all the time because I think I think the training kind of does it for you but I don't even mean I don't even mean that they like to be psyched up for training I mean that they like to feel like they're always they like to feel like they're always pushing they like to be fighting against something the whole time they don't know how to switch off and just just do the base building work well I think we've spoken about this a little bit in um, you know that episode we did about the the push blocks mm. like that's a nice way to sort of get someone to do one hard set a week where the majority of the work is sort of within their means and keeps them improving yeah there's other ways we can do that like with an AMRAP set you know maybe once a week for each lift or or it may just be a case of education and like you know this is why we don't do X so like you know we can do it and you can burn out and then not do well in your comp or you can do it my way and we can stepwise build into the comp yeah um, and that's a really funny way of framing it so when you say when you say basically we can do it your way and it's going to suck and you'll fail or we can do it my way and it'll be glorious like that's the way to win hearts well, and like, minds you know if someone is resistant to it resistant to it you could like genuinely let them do what they think is going to get them there and then see how they feel and mm. if if they do well then like maybe we can push them a bit harder more often yeah I think education is like is the key and I think reframing is the key so so some people will always want to be pushing their competition lifts hard and that again makes sense because that's kind of what they signed up for like they want to lift heavy because they're a powerlifter which is fine but if you can instill in them the idea that hey you know hey the thing that's gonna whatever it is like give you the chance to push your squat really hard in six or eight weeks time is building your quads up now and here are ways that we can like intentfully attack your quad stuff and get the best out of it that's going to help in and of itself. Like if you can get some buy-in and say, hey, like you said, this is the process. This is why it's working. This is the process, TM. TM. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is the process. This is why we're doing it. These are, <laughs> these are the returns that we're expecting to give you from it. That should help get somebody to buy into your process. TM. Thank you. Um, however, if somebody is just a really angsty person and there are just really angsty people who can't just let go and do things, I think that's also just like a longer term case where you're going to have to educate them and instill in them some patience and some enjoyment for the process itself. Um, I I just had a thought and this is something that Hanny did with me a long time ago. Um, I had a long break between comps or what I thought was a long break between comps at the time. It was about six months. Right. And... Um, he had me doing lots of volume work and then he sort of dangled dangled the carrot at the end of the stick and said, we're going to do some AMRAP testing. And that was like really exciting for me because I'd never done it before. It was like a way to push myself in the main lifts without, you know, peaking for a competition. So I had a little like half a week deload and I did my AMRAP testing and it was really fun. And it was something that was productive in that it got me training hard and ticking all the boxes in the lead up. And then the day itself was just like a bit of fun. Yeah. So that's that might be a nice way to to sort of frame that for someone who does want to push themselves a little bit. And then the other way you could do it would be like you um you program the blocks so that week 4 is always or whatever the final week of the block is in the case of the way that I do it week 4 is like 
quite a big push and it's going to be quite hard. And then week one is quite a big drop down. So they've always kind of got that week four, like it might be, you know, five sets of five at 85%. Yeah. And it, it, you know, that might excite them. Yeah. It's dangling in front of them. It's like, okay, if you stick to this for three weeks, you get the chance to push yourself. Yeah. And that may not be like the ideal approach for, for everyone, but this is something that we were speaking, speaking about earlier today. Um, is that like if the athlete buys in to the to whatever the process that you're giving them is TM. Um, sorry, almost forgot. No, um, if they buy into whatever you're giving them, they're going to give it 100 percent effort, and then they may get out as much as they possibly could out of that out of that process. Whereas yeah. if if you gave them something that they were only 70 percent there on, mm. and they only gave you 70 percent, that might be less than the results they would get from the suboptimal program. You got so close to saying process. I was about to say TM after program and I would have been absolutely destroyed. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's not a whole lot more I have to say on that. If I, were to, if I were to sum up basically what I was... Oh, I I have some considerations. Go. So, if we're sort of aiming for all of these things, mm-hmm. so getting back to baseline health, um, getting back to baseline like mental energy. Yeah. Um, and building work capacity and fitness. Mm. Was there anything else? Is that it? Uh, mental yeah. reframing, but like whatever. Yeah. And, no, oh, and um, working towards, towards the, yeah, working towards the next um, training block. Um, there are some considerations with the type of person that we're dealing with and then how long it's going to take them to get back to square zero. Yeah. Um, so what are, first of all, what are some of them, Will? So you already mentioned absolute strength. Um, that's one. That's probably the biggest one, I think. I think it is the biggest one because the the next one that I was going to mention is um, is like experience, but in some ways they're interchangeable. So if you get a lifter who is relatively inexperienced, so say it's their first powerlifting comp or their second powerlifting comp, they're doing a peak that still contains a reasonable amount of variety. The tape is very abrupt and they're more or less just training into the competition and none of their training got super hard or super low volume then because the peak's not so high, the trough's not so high, so the transition's not so hard. Um, whereas the other end of the spectrum are the people that Alex spoke about earlier in the podcast who lift super heavy, have a long taper, where volumes get very low, they handle very heavy weights, things get hyper-specific, and because the total volume they can do is super low, there's nearly no movement variability. Those people are at the other extreme. Um somewhere layered within that there's probably some differences in terms of just like absolute size and the genders as well so smaller people and or females who who are doing slightly higher volumes and or have more variety in the peak again are going to require less time in this transition but again there are some women who are lightweight women who do very low variability peaks with reasonably low volumes as well so so I think the biggest determinant is strength and experience and how that's reflected in the program. Are there other ones though, Alex? Yeah, there are, but let's just give a couple of examples. Okay. So like, let's say we have a female lifter who is 50 kilos and squats 80. Right. So she's done her peak. She squatted 80 mm-hmm. on a Saturday. Yep. She could probably come in on Monday and do three sets of 10 with 60 to 65% and be completely fine and completely back on track. Yeah, it's more or less. So true. for her, her transition period may be that one week intro. Yeah, leading. like do three sets of ten, and then the next week's four sets of ten, and she's back at baseline. Yeah, or like do your three sets of ten on all the lifts, and it's like five percent reduced to like what you would do usually, plus like a couple less sets for your back offs. 
Yeah. And then within one week, they're back to baseline and ready to sort of go again. Yeah. Whereas we take, you know, a lifter who's 120 kilos and maybe he squats 300 kilos. Like if you told him, you know, if he squatted 300 kilos on the Saturday and then you told him to do three sets of 10 with 60 to 65%, he probably wouldn't be able to do the first set. <laughs> and yeah, probably his back had cramp or something. And for him, like he probably needs like four to six weeks to get back to that square, that square one. So, you know, it could range from, I'd say, one to six weeks, I would say. Yeah, probably reasonable. Um, the other consideration that I just thought of was um, competition schedule. Yeah. So, if if we know that we have nine months until the next comp, we can be a little bit more conservative building back into volume because there's, there's no real rush. It's not really very time sensitive. Um, whereas, if we know we have 11 weeks, you know, we might rush it. We might actually make that intro week a little bit easier and then sort of get back into very close to what they're capable of pretty soon yeah or some a some sensible arrangement like in the course of 11 weeks you could actually spend three weeks ramping up mm. volumes but your intensity jumps might have to be greater as well yeah or you make other accommodations so that they're on track yeah whereas if we have the nine month time period like you know we might use that full six weeks mm. to get back to to square one Agreed. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any other, are there any others, um, injuries. I mean, injury. Yeah, injuries. That's probably are injuries. a case. That's that's a what, yeah, case by case. Case by case thing. Yep. Um, I don't have a lot more to say. So if I if we were to sum up this whole this whole thing thematically, it's basically considering what can you do to prepare yourself for future training, whilst preventing the risk of injury coming out of a competition. And that means gradual reintroduction of training, reframing of your approach to training and not making things abruptly too hard. But the degree to which you make those changes is going to be informed on a case-by-case basis. Would you add anything to that? No, I think that's a really nice way to sum it up. All right, in that case, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll come back for underrated, overrated or properly rated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're back on weekly ways and we've completely nixed underrated overrated properly rated or no, we haven't really no we'll do it after no okay well we haven't really because I'm gonna Alex wants to do a preview for the TSF team championships they're gonna be the day after this podcast is released which means people who listen to it anytime outside of the first 12 hours are gonna be able to see how correct or incorrect Alex was in real time the way we're and also turn- if you see me on the comp day and I talk shit about you come say hi yeah come say hi um <laughs> I'll be competing. Don't talk to me. Um, the way we're going to make it underrated, overrated, properly rated is I'm going to just say for each team whether you think they're underrated, <laughs> overrated, nah, or properly rated. I'm not rated. doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm going to do it. So, That's okay. slanderous. <laughs> All right, Alex, I, give me I a was, preview. I was just going to do a little, a little who I think is going to win. Okay, who's going to win? Okay, so I think there are a few teams who can win. Mm-hmm. I think within the mix is Team Hayes. Yep. Yay. Um, mm. Obsidian Strength. Yep. Definitely. Um, NSPC. Really? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't got, know who's in that team. Got, they've got uh, two locks. Two okay. lock for wins. So that helps. Yeah. Um, and also, Stanger might beat you. Yeah, fuck. He won't beat you. hope so. Fucking better not. <laughs> he definitely doesn't listen, so... <laughs> yeah, go on. Um, uh, JPS. JPS would be a very good chance. And... Uh, the fortress, the home, the home squad. So is that five teams you've said you think could win? That's five teams who have a legit 
chance. Oh, and Melbourne strength culture. Six teams. How many teams are competing? 11? 14. 14 teams. So we're saying pretty much the top 40% of the pool are all like within a shout of winning. Although I just remember that one of the lifters from Melbourne strength culture pulled out and she was probably going to win her class. So they're probably not going to win. Anyway, um, that was Lucy. You remember Lucy? Yep. Um, so who I think will win? I think the home team will win, the Fortress. Really? I do. So the way I, the way I look at it, I think there are a lot of teams who can get two first places. So sorry for the people who don't know what we're talking about. In concept, we've got a powerlifting competition. It's run just like a normal local powerlifting comp, except just like in the Olympics where if you get a gold medal, you get nine points for Team Australia, a silver medal gets you six points for Team Australia and a bronze medal gets you three or whatever it happens to be. Just like that, in the case of the Strength Fortress Team Championships, placing gets your team points and the points taper off from first to wherever you come. So basically, and each team's limited to bringing four lifters, so whichever team is able to secure the most points with their four lifters is the winner. Yeah. All right. So first on. place gets you six points. Yep. And then it's four, three, two, one. Yep. Down to fifth place. Right. So the value of first places is obviously greater, but there's also a two-point drop-off to second. Yep. So um, the way that I look at it, there's a, a lot of teams who could get two first places. And I think JPS could actually get four. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a bit of a hot take. Yeah. I think the Fortress will get three. Yeah. And I think they'll be the only club to get three first places. So I think they'll win. And explain to me why you don't think JPS will get four. Because you said they could get four. Because and now you're saying they're more likely to get well, two than three. They have one lock. Yeah. And then they have three Skeppers family members yeah all in close battles so to get all of them would be unlikely to but get two out of three maybe to get one out of three also maybe well my prediction is that JPS will win and I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of other teams win but I think JPS will take it um, because I think they will get probably three firsts and a second like that would just be on probability what they do because I'd say the ones that they're the competitions that are tight they're still favourites or a coin toss for. Well, I think I think Jules will win the sixty fours. So he's so that's t- the strength fortress lifter will win the sixty fours over over the JPS over lifter. the JPS lifter. Okay, that's one second. And I th- I think Stupus has got a chance against um, Sam. That's in the seventy seven kilo class. And then I think uh, well Ben beat. Jacob at Nationals and they're rematching so yep. that's going to be really close so I think it's going to be hard for them to get um, it's going to be hard for them to win but they could win I think the Fortress will win either way it's going to be an interesting weekend okay so finally John Paul Kauke underrated overrated, overrated probably rated the coach as a coach? Yeah. Not as a human being? No, as a human being, massively Severely overrated. Severely overrated human being. <laughs> as a coach? I'd say properly rated. Properly rated? Yeah. So he's got a good rep and you think his team's going to win? No, I don't think... Oh, I do think his team's going to win, yeah. Yeah, and um, just in your interactions with him. He's got a good a rep and obviously he is my coach and I think he's good. So, so you're too scared of him to say what you really think? 
No, I would definitely tell him what I really think. <laughs> All right. So there we go. That's underrated, over, overrated, properly rated for the week. Alex thinks his coach is good and that his coach's team will win Oi, the um, championship. Well, overrated, underrated, properly rated. Yep. Eric Trexler. Who's that? Is that his name? I don't know. Or is it Eric Helms? Are we talking about the dude from Iron Culture? Or is it Trexel? Hmm? What's his name? <laughs> the, you know, um, they got him again on Iron Culture with that. We're not even <laughs> I involved. Listen to that. I listen We're to that. not even involved in this, and we made that joke once. <laughs> um, but yeah, they got him with it again. I'd actually love to get Eric Trexler on the podcast. Is it Trexler or Trexel? Trexler. I'd love to get him on the podcast because he wrote that really good article about creatine, and so it'd be good to talk to him. But on the note of the podcast, we have an announcement to make. Big community announcement. We're on hiatus after this episode um, for six to eight weeks. Guys, put your tissues away. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal. Um, Just like I said, though, I still intend to record episodes for this podcast. So we will be back um, probably in the six to eight weeks. We'll record a couple of episodes so that we're ahead of time. Um, But the main reasons are just emotional, I think. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sick of looking at Will's head for two hours every week. Yeah, um... Yeah, I'm sick of Alex having to come over every Wednesday. Main reasons are emotional. Um, but also, yeah, we'd like to get out ahead, record a few episodes in advance so we can keep the quality high. So, yeah, six or eight weeks, we'll be back with more. Um, but until then, that's that. And um, if you'd like to see certain people on the podcast, mm-hmm. let us know. If you'd like to hear us talk about certain topics, let us know. Um, you can hit me up on Instagram, Alex Hayes underscore process. I'm W.BerkmanPT. And we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Yeah. Peace.